Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the Two Norris podcast. Um, this is the first podcast since the second lockdown. Um, and as always, James, my co-host. Um, and today we have a special guest. His name is Donald Clifford. Um, and Donald's going to talk about his experience with addiction, recovery, education. And inter- and he's also going to speak about his job at the moment, which is a psychotherapist. And he works as well. With the sexual he- sexual health organization, yeah, uh, sexual health center, yeah. So uh, I'm going to pass you off to Donald, and how are you getting on? Nervous, no, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I'm good. I'm a small bit nervous, as you can see. Like, but, yeah. you know, um, I think it's taken us a while to get up here. Yeah, so I think this was building for a while. Mm. But look, yeah, we we this was uh, organized many moons ago, and we've yeah. a lot of cancellations and. Yeah. Um, just life happens life. when you're busy making plans, like so. Yeah. But relax into it, yeah. you're amongst friends, yeah, and all that. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. well, um, if you want to tell us about who you who you are, where you're from, for people that don't know you, yeah, um, I'm Donald. I suppose, look, I, like you said, I'm a, a psychotherapist. I trained originally as an addiction counselor, I still work in with addictions and people in addiction. Um, and then I went on and trained as a psychotherapist. And then I went uh, a bit further and trained in sex addiction. And I travelled over to the UK and trained in the UK um, a couple of years ago now. Um, just, I suppose, look, just seeing, I suppose, what was going on with sex addiction in Ireland. Nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of what, what prompted me to go. There was nothing in Ireland here being done um, in any way, shape or form. And kind of even some of the resistance I came up against about even talking about it or, or, you know, trying to get people kind of get information around it. And I think I started doing my, about eight, about eight years ago, I, I did um, a paper on it. Mm. And like all the research was actually from the States. Like everything I was researching was coming from the States. And like they had treatment centers over there open with 30 odd years at that, at that, so 40 years now, um, kind of specializing in sex addiction. So I kind of, I suppose it was kind of, I'd be one of these people who, I suppose I, I just, I don't want to be one of these people who will just give out about something and do nothing about it, mm. you know. So I asked two colleagues of mine, would they um, would they kind of work with me? So they volunteered their time for the first two or three years while I was setting up what's called SALT now. Um, what's the SALT? SALT uh, is Sex and Love Therapy. 
Uh, Skogen under. Yeah, I'm going to cut the hoop in short here now, yeah. lads, because you're after getting to the end of the podcast already. <laughs> we even get to the start of it. So um, we just go back to the beginning again, don't yeah. we? And we'll just talk about um, what it was like growing up for you, like, because uh, your story in addiction is very, very important as well. Yeah, I shot through that part, didn't I? Mm. Um, <laughs> Avoidance. Avoidance, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I suppose. Um, like I said years before we started, my story would be very similar to yours and lots of other people that you've had on here. But uh, like I, I grew up with addiction, so all my life, like I'm well into my 40s now, um, 32. Um, you wish. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I, all my life, uh, like addiction has been part of my life since the day I, I came into this world. Addiction was there, um, alcoholism. And yeah, I suppose, look, as a young boy, I was, um, it was my father who was an alcoholic, you know, and he was, he was, I was, look, my experience of it was he was an extremely violent alcoholic. He wasn't just a fall down drunk. He was, it just, it turned him into something that I, I just, you know, I don't think words could describe it, but that's the kind of alcoholic he was. Um, I, I suppose that was the norm for me. Like, I think we discussed it before, like, like our worlds become normal to us. We normalize it. This is what goes on. Mm. Um, and it kind of, to some degree there is, um, there is kind of, this is what life is. And this is kind of, and like as a young child, especially like you kind of think this is normal. And I mm. presume every house is kind of like this. And part of you knows on the same hand, it's not, Do you know, there's a part of you knows as a child, it's not, um, but like I was actually thinking about a home last night, I suppose, in my little bit of anxiety, worried about coming up here today, talking to you about it. I was thinking, geez, what was it like? Do you know, when I really go back, and what came into my mind was, as a child, I used to have horrific nightmares. Do you know, I used to have nightmares for years. Um, into my early teens, I used to have nightmares. And they weren't just bad dreams, they were proper nightmares. Like, And I kind of... Do you know, I, I never put anything together um, until I started learning, obviously, about trauma. And I suppose what I witnessed at home and all that stuff. And, um, yeah, I could kind of shoot on through my story here now. But I, I suppose, look, growing up as a child, I suppose the, the kind of the reality of it is. And I thought, again, I, I thought this was normal stuff. Um, at about the age of 10, I, I remember being suicidal mm. um, and having plans. I think I spoke to you about that before kind of having plans of, of not going on any longer. Mm. Now, as a psychotherapist, I've heard that since, you know, that I wasn't the only one who was like that. That would be, I suppose it wouldn't be common, but it wouldn't be uncommon either. Mm. And um, I remember kind of, this is going to sound mad now, but I had a dog. <laughs> the dog was my best friend. Mm. Jesus Christ, that dog saved my life. Mm. Um, when you could talk to no one else, you could go and talk to the dog, you know. So I'd see kids today with dogs and kind of going, your dog is a man's best friend at times when there's nothing else and there's no one else, you know. Um, I just go out and talk to the dog. and it's sad by now. Isn't it? Sad, Isn't yeah. it when you think about yeah, yeah. it? But you know? at the same. I can understand it, though. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, I can understand it big time. Like. Yeah. It's sad in one, in one way, but it's great in another way because yeah. it, doesn't matter, it doesn't matter how you do it. You find a way of coping, you know, and it's better to be a dog than to have nothing. You know exactly. What I mean? Yeah. And dogs are great, like and they're I, brilliant. And I always yeah. say, when I come into recovery, we adopted it or we rescued a dog staff. Mm. And I tell no, he brought out a side to me. They didn't think I had a very soft, nurturing, loving yeah. side. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It would be 
they, you know, they're just so innocent, like, and you could be having a bad day, and you come in the door, and it's very hard to mm. stay in the downer when the dog comes over and jumps yeah. up, yeah? You know? yeah. It's like they read you. Yeah. They read your form, they read you, where other people will miss you, a dog will get it, yeah. you know? And they uh, love you. They uh, love no matter what you yeah, do. Yeah. Dog will always come over and, and yeah. just want the love, you know. Uh, I, have, yeah. I have two dogs out back there. And, mm. Yeah. You know. Do you have a connection with them? The minute I open the door, like, they're over wagging their tail. Yeah. And all they want is mm. rub. But anyway, sorry for interrupting. No, Continue right. Interrupt the um, But anyway, I suppose, look, the, the dog, I, I would say, was kind of saved my life at that age. But then soon after that... Um, I discovered weed. The relief. Even saying it, thinking back to that time, like my first smoke of weed. Do you know, I think you remember your first time mm. you smoked weed. I was able to laugh. Do you know, as being a young boy, 13, 14, that kind of age, being able to laugh, but being able to laugh at stupid stuff and kind mm. of silly things and just, just having a laugh. And of course, then you came with, all that came with fitting in with people and being part of something. And of course, that's what drugs do. Do you know, being part of all of that kind of bigger environment when there wasn't an environment there for you um, to kind of fit in with. So, as you know yourself, that all escalates, you know. Um, I found other drugs and I found other drugs and I found other drugs, but they all served a purpose, you know. They all gave me a, a kind of a relief. They created good feelings, you know. They were the kind of drugs I was into. I just wanted to feel good. Um, and, of course, back in the day, there was ecstasy. Mm. and it was good ecstasy no better drug for feeling good exactly <laughs> and feeling those feelings that you wanted to feel yeah. it was the love drug it was like Jesus mm. you know um, and it served a purpose up to a degree you know it served a purpose for me for about I'd say into my I'd say into my early 20s and after that it really started to turn against me um, it, so it didn't last too long no drink was there as well and the one thing I was me myself I remember being very young and kind of the one thing I had about myself was that I didn't want to be an alcoholic you know that's the one thing I knew about myself mm. of course when I started drinking what happened took over yeah. it just took over almost immediately it gave me that effect but not only did it give me the effect it changed me completely as a person you know it just turned me upside down and I basically from my eyes I became the person I didn't want to become do you know um, do you know the the ecstasy use because I mm. would have used ecstasy as well in my teens up to my mm-hmm. similar note to yourself um, the feeling of love warmth yeah. um, safety camaraderie belonging all these things that I was lacking sober yeah. when I took ecstasy with my friends around the fire just that's that like it's just um that's what I chased and I did chase it for a few years took a load of exercises it was all great but then in the early 20s it's like you know what this is getting a bit old now you know yeah. and the, the, the thought of an ecstasy you know would make you sick because you'd yeah. be physically sick like yeah. and then you're moving on to the next thing you know isn't it exactly that's exactly what happens you move on to the next drug and the next drug then was coke and it was that was just like you couldn't draw a coke to a person you know mm. and you couldn't like probably a gram of coke would get somebody to the to where they wanted to be, mm. but there's something about coke that you have to take more yeah. and more it's a greedy and more. Drug, isn't just it? greedy, and like you can't get any higher, but mm. you're still. And I think it's all that kind of that sitting down, rolling up, making lines. It's all that kind of 
you know, there's ritual. something about it where you just gorge on coke, like, um, because you might only take 10 ecstasy in a night, and, and mm-hmm. that's your last. But coke, you can keep taking and keep taking it, and that has a hold you're in within. It's a really strong ego drug, isn't it? Yeah. It's yeah, just, yeah. It's the ego comes out at the yeah. forefront, really. Yeah. has to be, you have to be the life and soul of the party, you have to be mm-hmm. the number one. Yeah. You know, um, and I say this from my own experience with cocaine because that would have been my drug of choice. Mm-hmm. But um, it really destroys the person behind the drug then. Yep. You know, they become all the things James said, they're greedy, um, particularly greedy, mm-hmm. sneaky, you know, ducking around. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like, I suppose my drug use didn't it last although it lasted a while the positive effects didn't last very long um i really should have been i should have been heading to treatment when i was about 18 19 kind of 20 that kind of direction i really should have been heading off to treatment getting it started out um i didn't i didn't i went downhill and went downhill um I went downhill fairly rapidly and I stayed down. I think I was down to about nine and a half stone at the end, you know. Um, I started losing my speech where I used to be stuttering. Um, my head was gone, completely and utterly gone. I was I couldn't remember what day of the week it was. I couldn't remember, did I meet somebody, didn't. It was just, mm. I think it's, got, it's very hard to describe when you get to that stage. It's It's almost like, I would say, my spirit was was absolutely wiped. Yeah, you know there was no hope. There was no life. There was the drugs weren't working. The drink wasn't working. Um, it was just like Jesus Christ, another day, you know. And I was at that level. I just did not. I just didn't want to get up. I had no motivation to meet anybody. I was losing everyone. Everyone was was gone out of my life, and I still couldn't see. It was the drink and the drugs that were actually destroying me. Um. I think kind of forward on a small bit. It was around 20, I think I was 27. And I got in trouble again with the law. Um, wasn't the first time. This time was very, very different. It's going to sound hard now to believe, but there was a relief. Mm. There was actually a relief in going, thank God. It's over now, yeah. It's over. Yeah. <laughs> it's over. Yeah. I, I actually understand that feeling. Yeah. A million percent because I felt the exact same way. Mm. You know, it was just like it was finished. I knew it was all over. Like at the end, I just knew like that. The only way I could keep going though was by changing everything that was happening in my life. You know, that life could yeah. never exist in the one I wanted. You know, spot on. That's yeah. exactly it. Changing everything, like everything. I think the lads were laughing at me when I came in today. Um, one of the best dressed guests. <laughs> yeah, you're looking well. You're looking well. I like the blazer. Yeah. <laughs> I had to change everything, um, and it, it took me time because I still kind of had that attitude uh, that I didn't. I never wanted to have. It's just something that I kind of grew into, and um, I suppose kind of the way I dressed. I wanted to get out of the streetwear. Mm. Um, I wanted the people kind of stop looking at me. I remember in the early recovery. I still be followed around shops by security, and I'm thinking, "What's your man's problem?" Mm. <laughs> but you're looking at it now. I can see what his problem was. Do you know, I wasn't, mm. and I had a shaved head. Um, yeah. Sorry, no, James. <laughs> Your suits you. <laughs> Mine didn't suit me. Um, 
I, I just looked, I, I just didn't look well. Do you know, even though I, I'd been in recovery, I just didn't look well, which means I didn't feel well, do you know, and I knew things just weren't right. So I put down the alcohol, the drugs, all of the lifestyle, I put all that down, but I still didn't feel right within myself. Do you know, there was still something not right. And I suppose that's what kind of, what kind of drove me on to do psychotherapy. Um, I'd been seeing a psychotherapist. For me, the difference that made in me was just, it, it was colossal. That's the word I was used for. It, it mm. kind of, I was working more on me as opposed to my addiction. Do you know, I put down the addiction. Um, like, I think I, I spent time in prison uh, when I got clean. Um, I, I spent two years in prison. And when I got out, I had three years then clean under my belt. Yeah. And... I wanted to stay clean. Like inside, I stayed clean. I went to the gym. I was above in the training unit. I went to classes. I went to everything that was on. I played badminton. Um, it was all about fitness and getting well. I learned to weld. Um, Isn't that, doesn't that just bring it back to the boredom thing for for, for people in recovery? Mm. It's, it's, it's critical that you keep yourself busy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because if you're bored, yeah. you're stuck yeah. with your thinking, and your thinking is your past thinking. Exactly. You know, but yeah. it, I was the exact same when I was away. I just kept educating myself, kept going to the school, the mm-hmm. welding shops. I was in the woodwork shops. Mm-hmm. You know, the boredom thing is very important for people in yeah. any form of recovery, like to keep themselves busy until they get stronger. Yeah. You know? And I but, remember years ago, my dad was in the training unit, and mm. it's much different to general prison. Do you want to explain to the to people that haven't a clue about prisons the difference between Mount Joy itself and oh. Mount Joy training unit? Um, Mount Joy is very similar to Cork. Mm. It's very it's it's a lockdown. Do you know it's um, it was slap out at the time. Yeah. Um, thankfully, that's all changed. Uh, the training unit is you have your own cell. Um, you go to classes, you freedom to walk around the landing, you eat in a dining hall, which I thought was like, it changed kind of the whole thing for me, where you get to sit down with other lads, you get to eat at a table. Mm-hmm. There's a bit of kind of bringing back the humanity to people, you know, um, you kind of policed yourself really, you know, there was never any arguments or trouble, a small bit like you'd have, you know, but there was nothing, yeah. you had visits, you could sit in a room with somebody and have a visit with somebody you could go down to class. The welding shop was open nearly all day. So you could go down and practice your welding. And mm. um, you could sit exams inside there. There was an art room. Um, you'd learn instruments. There was loads. Of, you could play badminton. You could run around the building. Do you know? Um, Do you think that that, um, uh, that that prison setting better suited you for reintegration when you got back out? 100%. 100%. Um it's a pity it's closed down now. I know. Is it? Mm. Yeah. 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 And did they put anything in this place? I think there's something in there, but it's not. I don't think it's. it's I heard something about uh, like a prison for older people or yeah, something like that. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. well, anyway, but it was it's way better than your general prison. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. like I was clean when I went in, and I wanted to stay clean, and I went to the meetings inside the A meetings and NA meetings, and they were really promoting recovery for people. You know, so there was a lot of us inside or the majority of us inside were in recovery to some degree. Yeah. Um so I enjoyed it inside her, you know. Uh, no. <laughs> That's an awful strain. It's relatively <laughs> speaking, like <laughs> yeah. as much as you can enjoy prison like. Exactly. <laughs> in comparison to Cork prison, mm-hmm. 
yeah there was there was no comparison no you're still doing your time and you still missed your family and you still had all that you were still locked up mm. but you know you, you could benefit from it mm. you know it, it like for me i i think it, it just paid off dividends like as yeah. opposed to being stuck above in yeah. car prison where you're you're basically doing getting out for hours a day locked up like you know yeah. um which is a long long time and where your head can go with all yeah. that stuff and um you, you used your time well, so like yeah. up in the training. I did. You got I out. Um, tell us about the reintegration process. What supports you use when you got out? The, the anxieties, the fears, the no on how you're presenting. And Jesus. Um, <laughs> it was hard. I didn't know about Cork Alliance at the time. Um, I didn't actually hook up with any agencies outside. Um, like before I went in, I went to treatment. I went down to Table Lodge, same as you. And... I kind of, I, I was hoping to fall back in with their services, but I think I was kind of away from it for so long. Um, I didn't fall back with them, so I came out myself. But I just remember that feeling of being an outsider in society, not fitting in in society. Like, I remember walking up the street, kind of not feeling like I belonged, not feeling I'd... Now I got out and I had a job. I, you know, I, I fell straight into a job um, on buildings. And I... I suppose I still had my partner, my wife now. Um, she was still there, but it, there wasn't a sense of belonging there as such. You know, I, I stayed going to meetings, AA meetings, NA meetings. Um, but it was hard. It was really hard when I didn't have a kind of a support network around me. So I, I ground out that for about a year, I think. And I I wanted to go to college. There was always something in me about education and getting education because I left school at 16. Do you know, mm-hmm. I kind of left home at 16, left school at 16. Uh, it, school just wasn't for me at all at all. So I know all my story is kind of waving a bit. Um, but uh, I went to college and started my started studying as an addiction counsellor. Where, where was that? What I college? started in the College of Com. Yeah. And what, um, what was the course? The course was... It wasn't applied psychology, social no, studies, was it? No, it was addiction studies at the time. Okay. Um, started there. And I remember the first night inside in the class, there was... Um, what do you call them? There was uh, prison officers inside there and probation officers inside there. Yeah. I was like, oh, Jesus <laughs> Christ. <laughs> what am I doing here? Like, yeah. do you know? And like the guy that was running the course... Um, Declan was his name and he, he was kind of saying are you sure now do you want to do this and I don't think you're ready you know listen I, I, you know, I kind of blagged my way into it um, he wasn't very encouraging for somebody that already had imposter syndrome yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he so was I trying to give you an avenue out there like well, yeah. fair play so he was yeah. grounded out he had grounded out no again I'd be like myself I didn't have an education at that stage like I'd never turn on a computer I don't even think I had an email address do you know mm. um I was saying to my, my wife, government at the time, I was saying, if I write out my essays, will you type them out? And she was like, not a hope. <laughs> so I had to learn how to use a computer my first year, and that was, I tell you now, that through it. I was looking for A, and I was looking for E, and where's E? I tried to write out an essay like this. Mm. Um, I got through it, and he, at the end of it, he encouraged me to kind of go on and do a bit more, so I did. Um, I did, and... I got on well with everybody in the class, you know, I actually fitted in with them. Uh, I think anyway, they could be thinking something else. Mm. <laughs> but I, I enjoyed I enjoyed being with them like um so I went on then and studied uh psychotherapy after that. 
just to keep the college thing I didn't really know what psychotherapy was it was just counselling to me you yeah. know um, and I think that was kind of the, the real kind of defining change in my own recovery where know? did you go out to do the psychotherapy I went to CIT I went out to CIT um, talk a little bit about that course only in terms of what it, what it can do for a person on the course in their own say recovery and personal growth um I think from from my experience of it, it gave me more of an understanding of where I came from. It gave me more of an understanding of what happened. Um, it definitely helped me repair some of, I suppose, my own unresolved issues, or at least it gave me a good start on repairing. There's a lot of group work involved in it, and like a lot of it is your own reflection on yourself and your own process. Um, like there's a lot of group therapy in it. Mm. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Now, it brought up bucket loads for me. So there was a lot of, there was a lot of tears um, mm. going through that course, especially in the first two years, maybe even third year. There was a lot of tears because it's, it's all your own stuff and kind of... Because how, how can you help somebody work through their own traumas if you haven't dealt with your own first? So yeah. that it makes sense yeah. that by the time you graduate, you've got a ton of personal development under your belt. Yeah. Yeah. fortune of it and you do you get a fortune out of it and you have to do so many hours yourself of your own personal therapy um, I think you have to do about 25 hours a year I was easily doing my 25 hours a year yeah, yeah. I, I just got I suppose I just got suckered into therapy where I, I could see the benefits of it mm. I could you know it was having like whereas when I was doing the addiction it was all about the addiction and the damage I'd done and having to stop and at the end of it, I was almost left with, Jesus Christ, it was almost all my fault, mm. you know, becoming an addict. That's kind of what I was mm. left with. And I know that isn't it today. Um, but that's what I was left with. I'm just a bad, horrible person. And then I started doing the therapy and I started looking at myself and I started understanding what did happen, you know, what actually happened in my life that turned me from the small child I was into the person I'd become that I absolutely hated. I hated the person I'd become, you know. Um, I took no enjoyment out of being that person. That's a normal thing for a lot of people in, in addiction. Like, they, they have that belief that they're no good, that they're bad, that they're not worthy, mm -hmm. you know, because that's how I felt as well, you know. And sometimes that unworthy feeling can pop up here and there again. And I have to catch it and say, no, mm -hmm. hold up a minute, I know where this is coming from now. Let's, yeah. let's just put you to sleep for a bit. Yeah. Because I know I'm worthy. Because what I'm doing at the moment is just trying to live a life, an honest life, and, mm -hmm. and do the best I can, you know. Mm -hmm. It takes a good therapist or counsellor to help you see your, your self-worth. Because like that, I would have went into treatment with no self-esteem. Do you know what I mean? A very poor self-image and all these mm -hmm. things. But when I come out of there, I had a bit more mass in myself. I need a bit more, like, you know what? You, you, you can actually, you, you deserve more from life, James. Do you know what I mean? You're not mm -hmm. as bad as what you'd hurt you were. And, you know, maybe you have a bit of potential, like, but it took six months intensive therapy in a residential centre for me to get to that point. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's very hard to do it on your own. Very hard, yeah. yeah. I, I don't think you would be doing it on your own. Yeah. I think that's what happens is a lot of people try and do it on their own. And they try and just go to, we'll say the likes of A or NA, and really it's it's the messages. And for me, it's it's the felt sense 
of it, like you can say, okay, I can work it out in my head. I'm not a bad person, but you can still have a a, a sense of it's about living it, isn't it? And it's like the shame mm-hmm. and the that felt it's ingrained it's inside ingrained, me, yeah. and I keep pointing here because yeah. it was there sure in no me. Cores, isn't it? And it was mm-hmm. like even your heart, everything. It's all. It's like your insides are rotten, and you're trying to tell yourself you're okay, you're okay, you're okay, but you don't feel okay. You know, you might walk around, other people might think, oh, you're doing well and you're grand and you're this and you're that. But mm. you, like, it's inside your own skin. Talk about a little bit about that in terms of where does that come from? Say, for instance, though, I feel a lot of shame. Mm. You know, I know where my shame comes from because of, I, I've looked into it and I, I know where it comes from my, my own mm. past. You know, like a lot of people just out there just feel shame all the time mm-hmm. you know and it's talk we often spoke about it it's toxic shame mm-hmm. you know and they have no understanding of where that may have came from they don't mm-hmm. even know what it is they mm-hmm. just feel like they're bad all the time mm-hmm. where where does it really come from and when and what what age and i suppose it, it's like what age for me some of this stuff goes way 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 back like even before your birth, yeah. Um, some of it goes back to your grandparents, your great grandparents. All of that, all of that stuff gets passed down. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be yours. Um, messages can get passed down. Do you know, it could be something about your family. Like I'd have something about my family. Do you know that it just and it's not even mine, and I know it's not mine, but it's still there. You know, um. And then when their stuff passed down, you, you pick up more of it and more of it. And somebody looks at you wrong and goes, okay, they know something about me. And you think, they don't like me or there's something wrong with me. And then kind of that gets played out as well, you know. Um, I think mm-hmm. that was my sense of where I grew up is that people knew stuff about me and my family. And it was like, and of course there was messages being passed, you know, about who you are and where you come from. And there was judgments and all that kind of stuff. And that gets picked up especially in children they mm. pick it up like that stuff there's something wrong with you um and that can be held inside and in your mind as an adult you can know but i'm okay but you mightn't feel okay mm. you know so it, it's more of the core of the person i think i had a couple of counselors and they, they kind of worked on that um as opposed to my thoughts and my thinking um, I'm reading the book at the moment in Audible I throw it on mm. in the car when I'm driving uh, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk that's the one and he's yeah. talking about um, what you're talking about the intergenerational trauma mm. and passing on in your genes mm-hmm. and a child can be born with these genes of shame and all these things what we're talking about yeah. but if the child come if the child is born the child can be born with them predispositions but mm-hmm. there are no guarantees that the child is going to grow up with all these mm-hmm. uh, negative traits if the child comes into a loving stable home where the, ch- the parents are responsive and there's safety and security but if you're born with these predispositions into a home where there's violence or addiction or mm-hmm. parental imprisonment or poverty deprivation yeah. then they can become very problematic later in life and if you had these predispositions from your grandfather as you said and mm-hmm. father and then you were born into a home of alcoholism in the home never going to turn out good for you yeah. and the shame comes the, the generation it's just become cyclical yep what's the name of that book again the body keeps the score. Body, and there's another one as well there I've read as well. It's a great book as well. It's called Healing the Shame That Binds You yeah. by uh, John Bradshaw. It's 
it explains a lot of that in, in mm-hmm. detail as well. Yeah. We link both books in the description for yeah, people yeah, to watch yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Excellent. They're excellent books. I, I, I was saying to you inside, like, the body, and I think, like, even the title of the book, that's literally enough to know, like, yeah. you know, like, I, I remember I had a guy in group recently, and he, like, I know he has trauma in his past, but he was talking about the lockdown, I was saying to you, kind of, that's what happened to me as well, that when you have to sit with something for so long, it does it does manifest in the body, you know, you might think I'm grand, but like he was talking about sitting in the lockdown and kind of having these jitters and these, like that's, that's, that's coming from, from his history. It's not coming from just sitting down saying I'm in lockdown for five weeks, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. Um, it it gets stored in the body, you know. And another thing there that the body just doesn't want to sit the leader body yeah. wants to be kept busy and if you're in a lockdown and mm-hmm. you can't go to work or you can't socialize mm-hmm. a lot of that stuff mm-hmm. that's why there was so much there was so many people suffering with their mental health in my opinion mm-hmm. it's because they were so busy all along and now all of a sudden they have to sit still be at home no social interaction mm-hmm. and they're having to sit with all these feelings and mm-hmm. emotions and it's a tough thing to do. It is. Uh, even at the moment, the government has stopped releasing um, figures for suicides in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Now, there's going to be, air sort of world industry, there's going to be a huge number of suicides at the end of the year. Yep. Um, they'll already have to see a huge rise. they stop publishing them mm-hmm. because of, they might be scaring people or whatever. Mm-hmm. But And I'd say if they can avoid it at all, car crashes, drownings, overdoses, mm-hmm. they won't class them as suicides. Mm-hmm. But even accepting all them, even... Mm-hmm. they probably will make for bigger numbers if they're added in mm-hmm. but as far as we know suicides for due to COVID are through the roof in Ireland and it's like we have to find a balance between managing the risk of COVID and then the mental health is just as bad if not worse you know mm-hmm. but we're not finding the balance at the moment no but look no. We, we digress Donald and we'll come back yeah. to you <laughs> <laughs> yeah I was enjoying that <laughs> I know yeah but um, so you were, you were in the psychotherapy yeah You've done a ton of work on yourself. Yeah. Hard. Yeah. You graduated. Mm-hmm. What was the crack? What was the crack? The crack was... Um, Huge uh, sense of relief and pride with the graduation. Uh, You've come from... Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Like, I, I, I left school. I wouldn't say no. I, I couldn't read and write, but I left school. I probably left school around the age of eight or nine, do you know, in my head. But physically then, I left at the age of 16. Um... I was gone. it just wasn't for me at all I couldn't retain anything mm. um, and I heard a quote there a couple of years ago a brain in pain can't retain and I said mm, yeah uh-huh, that fits I just couldn't remember anything I couldn't I couldn't do maths I couldn't read what I was at now saying that I have dyslexia as well mm. so that was part of it but I just couldn't remember anything um, I could pick up a book and I said I can't even bother reading this now because I know I won't remember anything at the end of it mm. Yeah, and I can really relate to that. <laughs> yeah, uh, but it makes sense. Like, yeah. like my my thing at the time, looking back, and all what I understand was everything for me up to an age was about survival. Mm-hmm. It wasn't about getting an education or learning my tables or because that stuff was worthless to me at that time. Mm-hmm. It was worthless. Um, but sorry, where was I with that? Oh, you'll, you'll come to the graduation, yeah. the pride and everything that comes yeah. down, and the, you know, the sense of achievement because yeah. of where you've come from. Huge, yeah, huge sense of pride. Um, my wife, I get emotional with this part of it. Yeah. Yeah. My wife was there. Um, my two kids were there. I have two kids, no two daughters. Um, 
it's like life had turned completely upside down for me like completely and utterly upside down um I you had a great night though you had uh, plenty of good food <laughs> Yeah, yeah, plenty of good food. Uh, I remember, I yeah, actually I, remember. I celebrated it. I kind of marked it as of if course. you know it was a huge occasion for me. You know, I yeah. never would have seen myself, you know, yeah. doing anything like that. Yeah. Um, I think big it was step, a isn't it? Don? Huge step, huge. Is, and, like and to have something like that then, and yeah. and do you know what? And and no, I'm not bringing it back to me here, but I, I, I it's just it's relevant mm. what you said. Even when I had that thirty second clip of the graduation, I was so proud for them few yeah, seconds, like you know, so. my name being mentioned, and it was online, yeah. you know. And yeah. I can just—it just brought me back to how you must have felt being up on that stage with this piece of paper and your yeah. kids and your wife in the stage, and no one yeah. like that. Do you know what? I've actually accomplished something that's really, really mm-hmm. going to inspire my two kids. Number one, yeah, you know, and. Everybody around me to follow to see what I'm after doing. They could do the exact same. That's I think exactly that's marvelous. Like. That was it. Yeah, and the people watching, like yeah. Timmy was fucking off his fucking game, and everybody <laughs> knows Timmy for being yeah. off his game. But now for him to go become so settled and calm, so to be graduating, Missy, mm. it's it's just shows by anybody can do it if you, you know, if the you, right, if you want it. Yeah, if you if it's right what supports. you want, uh, <laughs> yeah, if it's what you want. For me, it was burning inside me that I wanted to go to college. No, again, never thought I could have done it. And even when I was doing it, didn't think I was going to make it to the end. Mm. Um, and just that sense of pride and achievement, thinking, like, I think I'm 18 years clean in January. I am 18 years clean in January. Well done, um, yeah. So that's a long time. But even yeah. for me, to get clean was a huge thing, you know. And I remember celebrating my 10 years clean and sober. But then kind of to do college was just... It was, it was, you know, for me, it was massive. It was just one of the biggest things I think yeah. I could have possibly achieved. Um, I yeah. did that, and that kind of drove me then to go on and do a bit more. Now, there's still, being honest about it, there's loads more I want to do. Um, Lifelong learning. Yeah. We, we, we don't have our stats. It's like, not, you know, yeah. it's, it's in, inquiry, and it's, um, you know, your, your um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, you're inquisitive and you want to learn. You're curious. Curious. You're curious. Yeah, yeah. Once you start learning, you get the bug and you're yeah. a therapist. You want to be a better therapist all the time. You're coming up against, or you're, you're meeting um, unique people, unique experiences, and things might throw you. And you want to read some literature on that. And studies are always coming out. And yeah. So we're always. I'm the same. I'm always learning. I'm yeah. always reading new stuff. Um. So if I can just bring you back, bring you forward a little bit. Yeah. How did you get into the sex addiction? That's fairly niche, and in an Irish society where we conservative society, yeah. where we don't talk about sex really, sex addiction, um, it's fairly niche here. So, if you want to talk a bit about that, yeah, um, I did a bit of a training on it, um, a two day workshop, and it got my interest again. Like I have two daughters, and I think at the time, one of them was only kind of just born. I think she even born, but. I definitely had one daughter anyway, it was around that time. Um, I think I had two daughters, they were very, very young. And kind of what I learned in the two-day training, I was saying, oh shit, we're in trouble. As a nation, we're in trouble because there's nothing here. And I remember asking two colleagues, um, where do we send people in Ireland for sex addiction? They're kind of going, uh, there's a five-week program in Dublin, that's about it. And then you come back outside, you know, what? and it was very expensive. 
But I say, what about the normal kind of everyday man on the street who, who can't afford 10, 12, 13 grand mm. to go away for five weeks? And they were saying, there is nothing, you know? So I, I did a pilot program um, with a, a colleague of mine and the people who attended the pilot program had been to New York and had been out foreign, had been over to London and been to this place in Dublin, but they all had money. They were all well, they, they, they were able to pay for it. Mm. And I was thinking, well, if the wealthy are suffering with a sex addiction, what about the people who aren't so wealthy? So I started up um, SALT. I started it up uh, myself and, and two colleagues. And we that was around seven or eight years ago, I think. And ever since, it's just snowballed. Um, and did, did that grow out of uh, people presenting to you with these issues and you're looking in for help outside of you and it just wasn't there? Wasn't so there. So you devised the programme yourself? Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about the programme? Um, so the programme, I went over and I trained, like I said, with Paula Hall. Um, did a, a year's training with Paula Hall and came back. And again, the UK is very different to here. Do you know, just subtle differences. So again, I wanted a programme that we could that everybody could access okay so i did a very low cost and i did it based on group therapy okay and um so the program now i'm kind of i'm writing up a kind of a manual at the moment so i think last sorry this year i joined with the sexual health center so they basically took over salt um so martin and catherine's in the sexual center kind of seen the value of it so they said we'll come together and we'll do this and I kind of said look this is what I want I want something that's going to be able to be sent to Limerick, Galway, Dublin wherever around the country Um, so we we spoke about it we developed a plan that we would manualise what I'm doing and set up kind of places around the country because I was getting calls from all over the country you know Um, I was getting calls from Waterford, Tipperary Kerry you know, um, do you work with it? And I said, yeah, but this is how I work with it. So you'd have to be traveling every week. So it wasn't viable for people. Now, some people do come from, people were coming from Waterford and they were coming from Tipperary and they were coming from Kerry. But long term, it wasn't viable for them. So I devised a program that over the years and kind of all of my, all of my learnings um, that we have an assessment. So the assessment takes about four hours altogether. So you'll have initial, you come in, we meet, we sit down, are you in the right place and you're not in the right place? Uh, can we help you? You know, all this kind of thing. So it's it's just a meet and a sit down and see what is the problem. And after that, then there's a three-hour assessment. So you're, you're looking at everything. You're looking at sex addiction, porn addiction, alcoholism, drug use, um, how much are they drinking? Is drink the primary or drugs the primary? Is there something else going on? Um, is there mental health issues um you look at trauma their past their attachment so the assessment takes about three hours and you have a good sense of the person then coming in you saying are they suitable for salt uh, if they're suitable for salt they do a 10-week um psychoeducational program they have to be very honest in that assessment um presuming. kind of what i find is people generally are as honest as they can because be. when you're talking about sex there's a lot of fear that you're not going to be accepted for whatever's going on for you spot on you know yeah so i can imagine like that assessment i'm sure i know your trend mm-hmm. they kind of get a little bit of a just about people even though yeah. they're not telling you everything yeah. and you can understand them mm. yeah you do you're like you're never 
nobody, I think, I don't think anybody who ever goes in for an assessment is completely honest. Yeah. You know, and there's stuff that you're not even aware of. Exactly, yeah. Do you know? Um, but it, it all comes out eventually. Like, people tell the truth eventually when they realise, going, I didn't even realise that was a problem. And that's actually a big part of the healing is people coming up and saying, like, I, I didn't, I never even thought of these questions, you know? Mm. And then they might come back at the end of it and say, and like some of the questions would be repeated and they, they might give a different answer and saying, well, I didn't even think about that, you know? And that's just part of the process. And you, you take that for, Can for I what ask it is. Yeah, um, cause I'm thinking, oh, what how the audience is thinking here. Yeah. How does sex addiction manifest in, for different people? Is it like addiction? Is it prostitution? Is it, um, asking your partner for extreme demands? Um, keep what, going. <laughs> I, it's all of them. It's abs- there's there's probably an hour alone mm. in in actually explaining how it does manifest. Like I I don't think you can pinpoint exactly. Like people use sex workers, mm. um, people use pornography. It, it's whatever. And I think the reason we we kind of stuck with the salt is that sex and love therapy. It it mightn't exactly define as an addiction. It might be your relationship with sex. Mm. What kind of damage is, is, is porn doing to young people? Like, like, it's so accessible at the moment. Everybody has a phone and you, all you have to do is just type in a, a name or a word on the phone mm. and it'll come up. And you have kids as young as, I don't know, I don't know, well, 8, the, 9, 10, 11, whatever. The, the report recently coming out of, I, I think some paper in the doll I was reading it was, they're saying 8. That that's when they're starting watching it. Mm. Now you think of the damage that that does to a child's brain mm. watching, and what like what used to be an extreme porn before or hardcore porn is now the norm. Mm. It's now the norm. So the effect that's have like a lot of the people that I'd be working with today would be in our age group. Yeah. When back in the day it was a magazine, and yeah. the effects it has had on them. But now I'm starting to see more and more younger people and they had access to internet. Now, because years ago, if somebody in the estate had, yeah. a, had a video, <laughs> it might get passed around or a magazine, you know? Magazine. But now, but now a child, if a child has a smartphone with Google on it, they're exposed to it, you know, unless you have restrictions on the phone, anything. And I've heard anecdotally from a nurse mm-hmm. um, of young adolescent girls coming into the A&E with rectal damage because of yep. anal sex with no lubricant. Because yep. the boys are looking at the porn, they think that this is appropriate behaviour and this is real life and this is what we can do. Yep. There's research done in the States actually to back that up in, in some of the universities in the States that yeah. that's what girls are presenting with. So I, I think Ireland and kind of another motivator for me to start SALT was that and kind of the reason I, I joined up as well, I kind of myself and the Sexual Health Centre joined up was that we can see what's coming, you know, and I, I, I don't want to think that we're going to be 10 years down the road thinking, shit, like we should be doing something about this mm. you know I want us to be kind of ready for what is going to be coming because it's here now it, mm. it just hasn't really like like I, I the way I'd, I'd look at it is we had no advertising not a card not a flyer we had nothing I think only recently the Secretary Health Centre did put out some some social media um, but at that stage we were almost practically full anyway mm. um, and people were still coming word them out you know so like it's already there um it's concerning but i think where do you where where do you see it in 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 
five, ten years' time, do you see, do, can you see this expanding and being brought into other countries? Because Salt? Of, yeah, because yeah. it seems very, very, you, very important. Could you like go to Dublin or Donegal or wherever and train psychotherapists so they can deliver the programme? That's That's the plan. Yeah. That is more or less the plan um, that we will be training people in in delivering the program. Now it, it's psychotherapist with a good background of addiction. Um, you really do need a good background of addiction for mm. understanding an addictive process, understanding addiction. You know, mm. in, in general, um, like the way I, I kind of set this one up is there's there's almost four legs to it. There's the assessment. There is the, the psychoeducation ten week program. And then there's a group where basically you're you're helping somebody develop as themselves along with um, undoing the sex addiction or, or the sexual beliefs or or whatever is going on. There's the, we'll call it, problematic use of pro- pornography, whatever is going on mm. that you have, you have a group for that. And then if you want to go on further, there is another group um, where it's more of your own personal development. Where we kind of say, look, we've kind of pretty much dealt with the sexual side of it, but to keep growing as a person, there's another group. Now, at the moment, that group is full mm. because, like, some of the people who, who've been coming to the groups have stayed in the groups. Um, I would say they're doing exceptionally well. Some of them were there three or four years and they just enjoy the group therapy. Yeah. You know, it's not like the sex part has gone out of it. They understand the sex part of it, um, the, the addictive part of it they've dealt with it it's more their own development now is what they're looking for um so and the group as it sounds to me being in a group like that and talking about whatever's going on for you Mm. you know um it helps the people in the group to to feel like they have a relation you know they're not their own Mm -hmm. you know it it sounds fantastic it's like Mm. an a group you walk into but a is a Mm -hmm. but as james said earlier sex in this country Mm. it's like you don't talk about it you know there's a lot of shame surrounds it Mm -hmm. you know um i think that may as that may as well explain why the people in your group tend to be in their 30s and 40s because you have to have a certain level of maturity to address Mm -hmm. it and might find it hard to get the most at-risk people, which would be the younger people, to come in because it's such a hard thing to talk about from. I have come across a few, and they've been very open, but only because to the point of where their minds have gone. Because they're, they're kind of at that. When we used to talk about rock bottom, John, we used to say, oh, rock bottom, you say, a person doesn't have to be at rock bottom. Um, but it's when people have gone to that place where I, I just can't take it anymore, mm-hmm. and they can see the damage it's doing. So people are coming younger um can i bring up a couple of taboos do pedophilia mm-hmm. rape yeah these type of things mm-hmm. do people present to them with you no um salt is very different okay yeah. so like uh, patrick Cairns had three levels okay um the the two you've described there would be in level three we don't work with level three yeah that's that's beyond our it's realm, very like, specialist like a very specialist um we work on people with, with what we say level one, you know, or maybe some degree of level two where it's kind of exhibitionism, that kind of stuff, um, where people are just doing things that kind of impulsively or mm-hmm. kind of just, you know, risky behaviors. Mm-hmm. Risky behaviors. Yeah. Um, that might be frowned upon and that might be, some of them might be borderline 
kind of criminality, mm. yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, generally it's level one. So it's it's pornography, visiting sex workers. It's kind of even though that's mm, that's yeah. not criminalized. Um, yeah. A lot of stuff from level two and three. Any mm. probably that be probably in prisons. People would be working yeah. on that exactly. You know? Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah. a lot of a lot of sex offenders when they come out, they mm. do probation service, and a lot of it is addressing the what what you do maybe in them yeah. um, within the confines of the sentence. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you there as well was, you know, for people generally, for people with addiction, um, severely traumatized people coming from uh, child abuse, yeah. and is it is it the same with the sex? Is it are, are people coming there have to be spot on? It's the same. It's the same thing. It's just a manifestation. It's a just different manifestation. Different. Obviously, it's just different. Another symptom. That's exactly it. Like if you look at an addiction tree, you know, there's gambling on it, there's food on it, there's nicotine. There is drink, there's alcohol, there is drugs, there's sex, there's codependency. To me, mm. it's it's just another form of like mm. an addictive a way to escape. Yeah. It's an escapism. There's a slight difference with sex and, and love, and I'm gonna put love in there as well, is that people crave love. So underlying a part of the assessment is and it, it has come up with everyone I've assessed underlying their craving for sex or sexual acting out or even sexual avoidance or sexual binge purge there is this longing in each one of them for love to feel loved that's really what it comes down to they want to feel connected that's why i think the majority will come people who come and stay in the groups it's they feel connected in the group you know they feel connected to their facilitator or to their peers do you know what they feel like these people actually care about me they'll all have aces you know everyone presents with aces mm-hmm. aces uh, adverse child experiences experiences yeah. yeah yeah we spoke about that before on the podcast yeah. with sharon lambert with sharon, yeah. yeah yeah that's interesting yeah. that you could do another podcast and that yeah. like it's, yeah. it's such a broad topic yeah. and if you want to just refresh people that's watching explain mm-hmm. aces aces are Adverse childhood experiences, which are, um, I suppose, people who like ourselves who would say we grew up; it was our norm. Um, <clears throat> things the more, like, the more the more you've experienced, it could be um, an alcoholic parent, it could be poverty, it could be violence in the home, be violence yeah. against you, sexual abuse, neglect. Yeah. The more and there's ten. Just ten. The, the more yeah. you have. Research shows that if you have four, four or more, way more likely to end up in addiction and mental yeah. health. If you have five, six, it multiplies and multiplies. Yeah. So the more you have, the more likely you are. To Chronic illnesses, yeah. all that sort of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, the people that are presenting to you would would mark high on the ACE scores. Yeah, they'd all have ACEs. And like Paula Hall has a lovely model, and I use it now for all addictions. Um, the OAT model, where there's opportunity, attachment, and trauma and like you have to have opportunity so you think in ireland if there was no pubs there was no off license there was no drink for sale you wouldn't have any alcoholics you know um so there has to be opportunity but now since everybody's walking around with mobile phones there is more opportunity to access pornography so you're going to have more um people addicted to pornography they'll use it they'll continuously use it because it's in their pocket 24 7 it's there all the time now there was no morals here around us kind of judging people who use pornography it's used it's part of society the same as the internet is yeah. 
but some for some people it's like alcohol some people have no problem with alcohol other people do you know um so the opportunity is there attachment then how you attach or didn't attach to your parents or parental figure that would be there so you'd have attachment what we call attachment deficits um and then trauma but trauma is huge in in all the people i meet and like i, I would do an aces with everyone um and everyone shows up with aces you know? i remember doing it with jay years ago when i just wanted to I would have worked with Donald as well years ago. Yeah. Um, he would have worked as my psychotherapist for a bit. And we'd done the ACEs as well. And um, for me, it was something new. and yeah. it, But it also helped me to understand a little bit about myself. Yeah. You know, yeah. it, it helped me understand why I, I felt in, and was the way I was, you know. Um, and I'd done some research on it as well. And it just gave me a broader understanding of my own stuff. You know, in terms of, you know what, I'm not a bad person, stuff happened, I feel like this, I'm, you know, and what do we do now to make it better, you know, and it was just therapy, and for me, I always say meditation was massively Mm -hmm. beneficial for me, because it just always brought me back, you know, always brought me into the moment, and I was able to feel whatever, ever trapped energies were within my body from from any experiences I would have had as a child or in addiction or whatever and it definitely definitely helped me you know I before we do finish up I just want to say something like I always talk about one person like that one, one good adult mm. yeah. yeah like when I went into treatment it's nine years now, this this December, I'll be nine years uh, away from my drinking a drug and right. a gamble and everything, a crime and all that mad shit. But I met Donald in Table Lodge nine years ago. And I seen this fucker and I excuse my language. <laughs> now, he had loaded tattoos as well. Like, and he's a strong, strong bud of a fella like that. So. <laughs> and I got chatting to him anyway and we were chatting away and actually it was my counsellor down there, she said to me, she says that, there's a fella here, he works here, he'd be good for you to have a talk with. And I says, grand. So I, I said, fuck, I couldn't wait for this fella to come now, you know. I thought he was going to touch me in the top of the head and say, you're cured, uh, you're grand. But anyway, he came anyway, and we had a good chat, and he was telling me about his own experience. And you know what? It was that night where I just said to myself, you know what, I want a bit of that. I wanted, wanted, I wanted something like that. And I got out of prison three years later and I phoned him and I asked him to be my sponsor and and he became my sponsor for a few years and then we stopped for a few years and then I I, I connected with you with the psychotherapy because I knew what I was going to get do you know and um, everything he took do you know you need that person in recovery because you're not well, let's be honest. Mm. When you're early recovery, your head is not well. Like. No. You need that one person that you can look up to and listen to. And if he told me to cross the road and jump in front of a car, like if I thought it would help me on my road to recovery, I would have, 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 I would have done it. Like I would yeah. have done it. And you know, I'll forever be grateful for that. Mm. You know, for you helping me and still, you know, listen, mm. we're good friends now again. And, uh, you know, um, and I'm sure I'm not the only person that you're after helping mm. like that. You know, you know, and, and I, 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 the reason I'm after saying mm. this now is because I just want to tell people 
like as many times I do say it I do say mm. like I have that one person and there's always that or if yeah. I say it in a meeting or whatever <laughs> I just want to clarify it don't lose man, man. <laughs> <laughs> and just just before we finish up as yeah. well and just uh, for people that are watching and listening um if you have a young, if there's a young person in the family, or they know young people, I know there's a collaboration between the Cork ETB and the Sexual Health Centre at the moment, the Sexual Hub, where youth <laughs> workers can access services of the Sexual Health Centre. Yep. If they have concerns for a young person, and for adults, if they want, if they have concerns about themselves, friends, or family, they can contact the Sexual Health Centre in Cork. We link their website in the description, yep. and um, and we hope people enjoy it. Thanks yep. for coming on. Thanks, Thanks Thank you. Appreciate no it. And we'll see everybody next week. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.